All right, well, good morning. Welcome. I, I told a couple of guys this morning, I hate to admit it, but I actually missed you guys. Uh, I, I really did. I got a lot of new guys this morning. If you're new, would you, if you don't mind, just raise your hand. We're not going to do anything to embarrass you other than that, but glad you're here. Hope, you, hope you'll come back next week. Hey, if you don't like your table, you know, we assign you a ta- to a table. If you don't like your table, if you don't like your table, Shepherd, we'll move you. Don't, don't let him be the reason you don't come back, because uh, I'd rather it be me. But on your table is a handout. Uh, that handout will be there every week. And so uh, you don't have to print that out. We'll, we'll give that to you every week. It's got everything I'm going to talk about this morning, so you don't have to take a whole bunch of notes. Um, it's got homework. Hopefully you will do the homework. If you do the homework, uh, you're going to need uh, the devotionary which is uh, something I did earlier in the year. It's a daily devotional on the whole book of Exodus. Uh, It's over 400 pages long, so that's why we gave you this little flash drive. Um, That has everything on it you need. We will print out each week's reading. Uh, They're on the table out here if you don't want to use your printer or you can't figure out how to use a flash drive. Um, But that's going to be important to do in your homework, so that's always going to be in the back of your handout. So it'll have the notes for the week, and then it'll have homework for the following week. There's a couple other handouts out there. Uh, there is a, a bibliography of some of the books I've used in studying this summer for this series. If you like to read, if you like to study, um, you can avail yourself of those. Um, here's what I want to do to start out this morning. I would uh, like you to take just a few seconds or a few minutes to do a um, survey for us. Up on uh, the screen is a QR code. If you don't know what a QR code is, if you can't spell QR code, um, somebody at the table can help you, but here's what I I need you to do. It'll only take just a few minutes. I want you to use your phone. It's also on your table, and you can uh, scan the QR code and take a very brief survey. And this survey is anonymous. We're not going to check up on you. We're not going to kick you out if we find out things about you. It just simply will help us kind of... Figure out where you are right now in your spiritual journey. Uh, Again, I need you to be honest, be personal about this. Where are you in your spiritual journey? And we're going to take it again at the end of the 11 weeks to see if anything's happened. Uh, It helps us understand where you are, and hopefully these studies are making a difference in your walk with the Lord. So if you would do that, I would appreciate it. I'm going to continue to kind of move on as you're doing that, but take just a few minutes to fill out that survey. Um, we've got a full house, tables are full. Um, when we go into discussion in just a few minutes, if you guys need to move the tables apart to get a little distance, that's fine. Um, we may have to add some more tables next week as more guys show up. Uh, believe it or not, there are guys who forget that we start. Um, sadly, sometimes it's table shepherds who forget, oh, it was this week. Uh, they'll show up next week, but... This is a great problem. I love a full house and a full room. So um, if you need to spread out in just a few minutes, do so. All right, we're getting ready to start the book of Exodus. Um, If you were not here last year, we did uh, two semesters of the book of Genesis, and we covered it in its entirety. It took us two semesters to pull it off. Uh, We're going to do one semester of Exodus. It's just as intense a book. It's just as deep. And yet, I'm not going to take two semesters to do it. We're going to try to encapsulate it into one semester, 11 weeks. So it's going to be a 36,000-foot view of the book of Exodus. But here's here's my goal. Here's what I want to do with the book of Exodus. First of all, it's an important book. It's part of, as we'll see in just a minute, the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And, And so it's critical that we understand Exodus. Exodus is probably one of the books that most of the guys in this room are familiar with. You're at least familiar with the stories in Exodus. Um, The people of Israel leaving Egypt, the 10 plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, um, the fiery bush where God spoke to Moses and called him to lead the people of Israel out of their captivity in Egypt and into the promised land. We're familiar with a lot of the stories in the book of Exodus, but I don't know that we're familiar with how the book of Exodus fits into the whole grand scheme of things, God's eternal plan for his people. And so what I want to do is is help us understand what this book is really all about. 
And that's what this study is going to be about as we look at God taking his people from Egypt all the way to the promised land. And so it's going to be a fun journey for us. I think you're going to see things maybe you've never seen before. We're going to explore parts of Exodus, the story of Exodus that maybe we've never explored before. And my goal by the time we're done is not that you know more about Exodus and you can wow your friends with your knowledge of the book of Exodus. It's that you know more about God than you do right now. Because this book, like every other book in the, the Bible, is about getting to know God. It's the revelation of God. And so we're going to learn a whole lot about Moses and the people of Israel, the people of Egypt. And, but really, if we don't learn more about God, then we've wasted 11 weeks of our time. And so that's going to be my goal as we move forward. So why are we studying this book? Why take 11 weeks to study a book that was written thousands of years ago to a people who are not us? And one of the things you're going to have to understand is that this book was not written for you. Uh, it, it, when Moses penned Exodus, he, he didn't have you in mind. He didn't care about you. He didn't know about you. You weren't the foggiest thing in his mind when he wrote this book. Now, that doesn't mean this book is not for you or for me. But we have to understand as we study it that it was written by a particular person for a particular people living at a particular point in time. And that's the way we're going to try to unpack it. But why, So why are we reading it? Why are we studying this book that was written so many centuries ago? Well, the easy answer is found in 2 Timothy. And you're familiar with this verse. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is literally breathed out by God. He is the one who inspired it. He's the one who wrote it. There are 66 books, but it was written by one individual, and that's God, through the hands of men, but it's God's book. He inspired it, and it says that he's, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This book, in its entirety, Genesis to Revelation, is profitable. It has purpose behind it. It is life-changing. It will do things to you that nothing else in the world can or will do. And here's the goal of it all, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, that's my hope for you. That's my prayer for you as you go through this series. Again, not that you'll be more knowledgeable about the book of Exodus, but that you'll be more knowledgeable of God and how God, your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Noah, the God of Moses, the God of David and Solomon, the same God can do in your life what he did in in these men's lives. So that's, that's my hope. That's my prayer as we move through this book. That's why we're studying it. It's a revelation of God to you. And you need to read it that way. As you go through these daily devotionals, as you, as you read the different passages that you're going to read each week in preparation for each week's lesson, I need you to look for God. Years ago, my dad, uh, who's long gone, but he was my mentor. He was my hero. He was a, a pastor. My dad told me, Ken, every year you need to get yourself a new Bible and you need to start reading it from Genesis all the way to Revelation and on every page, look for God. And I thought it was the dumbest advice I'd ever heard. I'm like, well, first of all, why would I want to read through the Bible? Why would I want to read the Old Testament? I hated the Old Testament. And he said, Ken, I'm just telling you, if you look for God, you'll find him on every page. And so one year I finally took him up on it and I was blown away. I found God on every page of the Bible. And he said, every time you see his name, underline it. Every time you see him say something, underline it. Every time you see him do something, underline it. And pretty soon I I see that every page of my Bible is underlined and scored because God is on every page of the Bible. And, And so it's God revealing himself to you and I. And in the book of Exodus, He's there in spades, man. He is all over the book of Exodus. He's not just mentioned, but he's speaking and he's appearing and he's doing things and he's showcasing his character. So as you read through Exodus, look for the character of God. Look for examples of his power and there's gonna be plenty to see. And here's the saddest thing about studying the book of Exodus. I've tried to look at all kinds of commentaries written by all kinds of individuals coming from all kinds of perspectives. And so many of the modern uh, commentaries have written off God. 
They have discounted the fact that this is a divinely inspired book. These are Christians who have basically said, it's a, it's a story, it's not history, it's a story made up by men to help explain their view of God. But it's really not God. And I couldn't disagree more. This book is all about God. This, God, this is God showing up in major ways speaking and appearing and doing things that only God can do and exhibiting power like no one has ever seen before and showing his glory. God's glory is going to be on virtually every page of this book and people are going to be petrified by his glory. You know what bothers me is that we no longer revere God's glory. As the people of God, we're no longer awed by God. We're we're no longer blown away by the power of God. And maybe it's because we haven't seen his power lately. But as you study the book of Exodus, you're going to see his glory manifested in such power that the people of Israel say, "We we don't want anything to do with him. And they tell Moses, you talk to him, we don't want to talk to him. They're afraid of him because his glory is so stinking great. And he's in control all the time. See, one of the things I think you and I need to hear at this point in time in which we live is that our God is still in control. Because I wake up virtually every morning, and if I'm dumb enough, and I look at the news, or I search the internet, and I bring up the news feeds that I particularly like, I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly just like, good gosh, God, where have you gone? What, what have you done? Where, where are you? Why have you let this happen? And I begin to believe that my God no longer has the power he once had. But in studying the book of Exodus, I'm reminded over and over again that my God is as powerful today as he was then. If he's the same God as he was then, why are we so worried, so anxious, so put out, so afraid of what's going to happen in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead? Why are we, of all people, lacking hope when we should be a people of hope? We're going to see his faithfulness. I don't know about your God, but my God is faithful. My God is always faithful, even when I feel like he's not. And that sounds like an oxymoron, right? It sounds like I'm, I'm contradicting myself, but every time I look back in my life, I see the faithfulness of God. Now, there are moments in my life where I feel like he's not faithful. I feel like he's abandoned me. He's left me. He's forgotten about me. He's angry at me. He's punishing me. He's disgruntled with me in some form or fashion. But if I give myself time to look back, I see that he has never left me. He's never forsaken me. He's never disappointed me. He's always come through for me. It's just that he doesn't necessarily do it the way I would like him to do. And I wish he would just ask me. And I'd tell him, but guess what? He'd go, I know what's best. I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way because my way is always the best way. And his way is always faithful. It's always faithful. So we're going to see that we worship the same God that Moses worshiped. And I need you to approach the book that way. I need you to look at this God that you see in the book of Exodus and go, is that the God I worship on Sunday? Is that the God I wake up and think about? Or is this a different God? Is it, man, I wish I had a God like that. Well, guess what you do? You have the very same God. For I, the Lord says, I don't change. God changes or doesn't change. We do change. I hate to break the news to you, but it's been months since I've seen some of you. You've aged and some not too well. I've aged. I'm older. I'm I'm getting older faster than I would like to, but I change. You change. God doesn't change. He's the same all the time. And that means he's the same God then that he is now. I love this psalm. Long ago, you laid the foundation of the earth and you made the heavens with your hands. We studied that in the book of Genesis. They will perish, but you remain forever. This world is decaying, just like this body is decaying, but not God. You remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You will change them like a garment and discard them, but you are always the same. You, God, will live forever. See, we've got to get that through our heads that our God, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Moses, David, Solomon is the same God you and I worship. Here's the rub. 
then why don't we see him doing the same kinds of things? It's not that God is not doing powerful, mighty, great things. It's that we aren't looking for it and we don't expect it. We really don't expect it. When we pray, we really don't expect to see God do mighty things. When we see problems in the world, we really don't expect God to intervene and do the miraculous. We don't expect our God to do the things we see in the book of Exodus, and yet we should. I love this passage. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If that's true of him, guess what? It's true of the Father. God the Father and God the Son never change. You, you could easily come to the conclusion that God is so frustrated with the circumstances in the world in which we live that he's just like throwing up his hands and going, I'm done, I'm, I'm done. Now he's done that before, right? We saw that in the book of, of Genesis where he finally just went, okay, I'm done with this. And he did a royal reboot. He, he basically took a mulligan and said, okay, I, I'm done. The sin is so great on the earth that I'm gonna wipe out everything I made and I'm gonna start over with one man and his family, Noah. So he's done it before, but he said, I'll never do that again. So we need to be careful when we say that, well, maybe God's just so upset that he's basically thrown up his hands and he's done with earth. He's done with mankind. No, if you read the scriptures, you find out that God is not done. He's still at work. He's still got a plan and he's working that plan. My God, your God is the God of Exodus and he's the God of this current culture. Even though it doesn't look like it, right? Even though it looks like it's all going to hell in a handbasket and guess what it is? And from what I can tell from the scriptures, this is gonna get worse, not better. God is still in control. He's the same God. And I want us to wrestle with that and think about that, that my God, your God is the same God. He hasn't changed. So we're gonna take a journey together. The title I've given this whole series is The Road Less Traveled. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and I assume you are because you're here, that's probably a bad assumption to make. But if you're a believer, you've, you've stepped out in faith and you're on this journey with Jesus Christ, it's a journey. And sometimes it's a journey that's not, not a whole lot of fun. Guess what? The journey from Egypt to Canaan was not a lot of fun. It was a journey. It was a long journey. It was a difficult journey. There were some highlights and there were some really low points. Guess what? That's been my life ever since I came to faith in Christ as a seven-year-old kid in my dad's church in Long Island, New York. It's been an up and down journey. I'm 67 now, it's, or I'm 68 now. See, I've gotten older and I just forgot. It's been an up and down journey, but it's been a journey moving upward. Lots of peaks, lots of valley, but it's moving in an upward tra trajectory. My faith is stronger now than it used to be. My walk with the Lord is deeper than it used to be. I have more hope than I used to have. Doesn't mean it doesn't wane. Doesn't mean I don't get disappointed. I don't get fearful. But those bouts of fear don't last as long as they used to because I feel like I'm moving further and further on this road. You are on a journey. We're on a journey, an 11-week journey as we study this book, as we look at the people of Israel and we try to figure out what can I learn from them? Well, here's what I've seen in studying the book of Exodus. They're gonna take a journey from Egypt all the way to the land of Canaan, the land of promise, and it's gonna require faith. Guess what? Your journey requires faith. One of the most difficult things you and I face as Christians is to have faith, daily faith. It's one thing to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your savior. It's a whole nother thing to live by faith every other day of your life from that point forward, right? Because it's difficult. When I came to faith in Christ at seven, I wasn't on a very difficult journey other than the fact that I had to grow up in New York. That was a difficult journey. Uh, I lived among a whole bunch of people who didn't know Jesus Christ, didn't care anything about Jesus Christ. None of my friends were believers. And so I lived in a culture and a climate that made my walk with Christ very, very difficult as a young boy and as a young adolescent growing up in that environment. But it required faith. Yours requires faith. Their journey required obedience. We don't like obedience. I like people to obey me. I just don't want to have to obey anybody else. And we as Christians don't 
tend to like to obey God. And one of the reasons we avoid books like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and specifically Leviticus, is it's all about the law. And we don't want the law. We're free from the law. We don't want to have to keep the law. We don't want to have to do what God tells us to do. And yet the people of Israel are going to find out that obedience is key to the journey. And it's not going to be easy. See, I would love if this story was just this really um, beautiful story of just God redeeming them and setting them free and everything's rainbows and unicorns from that point forward. But it's not. Why? Because they're human. They have sin natures. They don't seem to quite understand what's going on here, and they can't seem to get their heads around who this God is that has set them free and what freedom really means. See, I'm, I'm going to kind of set you up with this idea that the book of Exodus is not about freedom. See, we think it is, being set free from captivity so that they can go live in freedom in their relationship with God in the land of promise. But guess what? They never do really experience freedom. They get freed from slavery only to be captivated by sin. It's amazing. They get freed to become captives again of their own sin. And it's all throughout the book. So getting set free is not necessarily the story of this book. It's about the journey, and that journey has a beginning and it has an end. Your journey has a beginning and an end. Your journey is somewhere along a path between when you came to faith in Christ and when you go to be with Christ. And some of us are further along on that journey than others. Some of us may go quicker than we thought we were going to go, but there is an end to this journey. There's an end to this journey but we got to keep our eye on what's the goal? What's the end in mind? What is God really trying to do with this, these people? See, getting Israel out of Egypt is not the point of this story. Having grown up in a Southern Baptist church where my dad was my pastor till I graduated from high school, I heard Sunday school story after Sunday school story about the book of Exodus. Little vignettes about the book of Exodus and it was always about getting Israel out of Egypt. But the more I studied the book of Exodus, I realized that's not the point of the story. See, that was easy for God. Getting Israel out of Egypt was not the issue. It's getting Egypt out of the Israelites. Well, what does that mean? These people had been in Egypt for over 400 years and had long ago forgotten about God. They had not worshiped Yahweh for over 400 years, four centuries without God. Guess what they were worshiping? The gods of Egypt. They had become Egyptianized. They had become like their neighbors. And so when they get set free, their problem was not getting out of Egypt. God made that pretty simple for them. All they had to do was pack up their stuff and walk. And they walked over, as we'll see, on dry ground. But it was going to be really hard to get Egypt out of them. And see, for some of us, what we struggle with is not so much that getting set free from our slavery to sin, our addiction to sin, but we still have a sin nature that remains with us even after we come to faith in Christ. And getting rid of that is really hard, as you well know. So this is really the crux. They're God's chosen people. God chose them. We'll look at that. They're chosen, but they choose to abandon God. And it doesn't take long. This is what blows me away, the story. God redeems them. He sets them free. He leads them across the sea on dry ground. He destroys the army of Pharaoh. And yeah, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but you know this story. And immediately they abandon God. It took them that long. I mean, amazing story of how God delivers them. And in, in everything that he does, they walk away from him in a heartbeat. And I do it regularly. You do it regularly. God does incredible things for you day in, day out. And then you walk away from him with virtually no temptation whatsoever. See, it's part of the problem that we have with this sin nature that resides within us. So the goal for them as far as I can tell from reading this entire book, 
is for them to get to know and trust their God. And guess what? That's going to be my goal for 11 weeks, is to get you and me to get to know and trust our God. Well, can I already know God? I'm sure you do. But I don't think you know God as well as you need to know God. And I can guarantee this of every man in this room, I know you don't trust God the way you need to trust God. And that's true of me as well. So that's going to be where we're headed in this whole study, that you might know and trust God with your life, with your fears, with everything about you. Now, I want you to look at this passage, and it's one that you've heard before, and I want you to think about what is being said here. This is God speaking to Moses after he calls him to go deliver the people of Israel. Here's what he says. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Look at how many times God says, I am, I will. This is what I'm going to do. Now, what you got to understand is this is the first time this guy, Moses, has ever, from we can tell from Scripture, heard from God. Now, imagine that, that if just out of the blue, God spoke to you and he said this to you. It would be mind-blowing, right, that you've lived your life in Egypt. You've actually grown up in Pharaoh's court. That was what happened to Moses. And yet God suddenly appears and says, I am, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is what I'm going to do. Then he goes on and he says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'm going to do great things. I am a great God. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession because I am the Lord. What is God doing with this guy named Moses? He's telling him, hey, you don't know it yet, but I'm your God. Not the gods of Egypt, not the God of the Nile, not Ra, the sun God. I am your God. I'm the only God. And this is what I'm going to do for you and for the people of Israel. He's, he's introducing himself to Moses. He's telling Moses what I am going to do. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Why is he doing that? Because Moses needs to know what kind of God he actually serves. I believe Moses believes in God. I believe Moses has a relationship with God. I just don't think it was a very strong relationship. And so God is going to fix that. See, what I can tell from reading the book of Exodus is God knew his people really well. He knew Moses really well. He knew everything about Moses. Guess what? He knows everything about you. He knows you intimately. He knows everything about you. He knows every secret you've ever withheld from anybody you know. He knows every sin you've ever committed. He knows every sin you've thought about committing. He knows everything about you. He knows you, and he still loves you. Same same thing's true of this guy. He knew him. Now he wants Moses to know him. And there's a huge difference, right? God knowing me is wonderful, except for the parts I really wish he didn't know. But me knowing God is a totally different thing, right? I've got to get to know my God. And the only way I know that I can get to know God is through the Word of God, studying the Word of God where He reveals Himself. So it's more than a story about deliverance. This isn't about just getting people out of captivity and into the wilderness and hopefully someday into the promised land. It's it's about much more than that. It's about redemption, redeeming people from something that had enslaved them so that they could be, quote, enslaved by something better. Not sin, not Egypt, but enslaved by a loving, compassionate God. Now that sounds odd, right? To be enslaved by God. But the truth is you are going to be ruled by someone or something. And I hope you would prefer God over anything else. To be a servant of God. You know, Paul over and over again said, I am a slave of God. He chose to serve God. He wanted to serve God with every ounce of his being. So we are redeemed so that we might become righteous and so that we might have a relationship with God Almighty. I hope that doesn't just sound like semantics to you. You know, that you've heard sermons about this. You've you've read it. 
you've done devotionals on this, that, but guys, this has got to mean something, that God has made a way for you and I to be righteous, to live righteously, and to have a relationship with him. And I want to get to the point in my life where that is more important to me than anything else. My righteousness and my relationship with God Almighty. More important than my relationship with my wife. More important than with my relationship with my adult kids and my grandchildren. More important than anything else is my relationship with God. I love this from John. This is eternal life. We think of eternal life as heaven, right? Going to be with God in heaven. But this is what John says. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And he just stopped and think about that. This is his, the Apostle John's definition of eternal life. It's not just an eternal state where we no longer sin, we no longer have pain, we no longer uh, have sorrow, our bodies are redeemed and no more pain, no more suffering. We all look good, we have a full head of hair, you know, it's great, it's wonderful. That's not eternal life, that's a byproduct. Eternal life is knowing God. And here's, here's the deal. You'll never exhaust your knowledge of God, even for eternity. Imagine that. Every day you're going to learn something new about God. If that's the eternal state, why in the world would we not want that right here and now? See, we have the capacity to grow in our knowledge of God, even right here as we live, the only true God of the universe. Now, we're going to read this quote. It's a long quote, but it's it's critical for us to understand what this guy, A.W. Tozer, is saying. He's long gone, one of my favorite authors. Listen to what he says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If, if I just stopped there, we could spend weeks just talking about that statement. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, if you think about God and you go, judge, critical, distant, um, unloving, uncompassionate, uncaring. If that's what comes into your mind when you think about God, that is pretty important, right? That's your view of God. But if you think loving, kind, gracious, powerful, forgiving, that's also incredibly important. We all have things that come into our mind when we think about God, but he goes on. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Every religion has a view of God, what God looks like, what God does, and it forms what they believe about him. That's true of Christianity, Islam, Judaism. It's, it's how you view your God. Worship of that God is pure and base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So in other words, your view of God will determine how you worship God. If your God is judgmental, harsh, critical, distant, unloving, you're not gonna really wanna worship that God, right? You're gonna fear that God and hide from that God. But if your God is loving and kind and gracious and powerful, you're gonna wanna draw near to that God. So that's why what you think about God is important. Your knowledge of God is critical. Your idea of God is going to drive how you worship God. So he ends it this way. For this reason, the gravest question for the church is always God himself. And the more, most portentous or important fact about any man, listen to this, is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. See, we think it's all about what we do. Our activities, our actions, even our attitudes, our thought life, you know, that is the most important thing about me. No, the most important thing about me, according to A.W. Tozier, is what you think about God. Because what you think about God will determine everything you do, say, think throughout your life. How you conceive of God is critical. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. This is gonna be what drives this next 11 weeks for me, is what do I, what do you, what do we as a church believe about God? What's our idea of God? How do we view God? 
How great is our God? How loving is our God? How powerful is our God? Is our God truly sovereign? So what is your, at this moment, this is why you took that little survey if you did, what's your current idea of God? What comes into your mind when you think about God? I want that to have either changed or grown stronger by the time we end in 11 weeks. I want your idea of God to be so clear that you're no longer the same. Is your God holy? Do you see God as holy and unlike anything else in the world, including you? Is he all powerful or is your God somewhat limited? Your God can't fix this problem we live in. Your God doesn't have the capacity to step into your life and help you with issues, relational issues, financial issues, health issues. Is your God able to deliver? See, if you don't believe these things about God, you will never pray to that God. Or you'll pray, and when things don't turn out quite the way you expected, you'll stop praying because your view of God has changed. Is your God just and righteous? Is everything that God does just, or is it unfair? How many times have you thought that about God? Well, that's unfair. I didn't deserve to lose that job. He didn't deserve to get a promotion over me. That's just unfair, God. Your view of God is huge. It's critical. Is your God loving and compassionate? Or is he distant, doesn't care? Is he reliable? Can you trust God? One of the things I've seen in my life is that there are certain things I don't share with God. There are certain things I don't want God to know, which is really stupid, right? If my God knows everything, the scriptures tell me God knows what I'm thinking before I think it or say it. And to think that, well, I'm not going to tell him about this because I don't want him to think less of me. He already knows. He he already knows everything about me. The problem is I don't trust him with that information. See, I don't want him to know I thought this or did this or watched this because he might not love me as much. See, that's a warped view of God. That's the wrong idea of God. That's a wrong conception of God. And here's probably the most important one. Do you believe that your God can be known? Is he knowable? Has he made himself available to where you can get to know God? Here's what Exodus teaches me. My God, your God is highly knowable. He wants to be known by you. He reveals himself to you. He's given us an entire book that is designed to introduce himself and make himself known to you. And I know some of you really don't like to get into his word because you find it boring or difficult or whatever. And yet God's on these pages and said, here I am. Here's how I work. Here's what I do. Here's what I expect of you. Get to know me. He wants to be known and he is highly knowable. Psalm 66 says, come and see what our God has done. What awesome miracles he performs for people. He made a dry path through the Red Sea. His people went across on foot. There we rejoiced in him for by his great power, he rules forever. He did all these things that we're gonna study over the next 11 weeks so that the people of Israel might not be impressed with the things he did, but so they might be impressed with him. Wow, that's a God. Here's what I can guarantee. All the 400 years they lived in Egypt, they never saw anything done like this by any of the gods of Egypt. Nothing like this. And suddenly they're seeing God do things that blew them away. And they had to walk across that dry land between those walls of water, slack-jawed, just going like tourists in New York City for the first time. Wow, how is this even happening? That was God introducing himself to them. And you see it over and over because God wanted them to know him. So we're just gonna blow through these first seven verses. That's all we're we're looking at this morning. This is the introduction. And then we're gonna dig into the depth of the book of Exodus in the weeks ahead. So these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And then gives the names, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad and Asher, the 12 sons of Jacob. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and they multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. First seven verses. 
What you need to know is in the Hebrew Bible, these first seven verses begin with the word and. And that word is there. It's a conjunctive, right? It connects one thing with another. What does it connect? It connects with Genesis. It's one book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so the story is being continued that we studied back when we did the book of Genesis. It says that they were fruitful, they multiplied, they grew strong. What is going on here? It's the sequel. It's what happens after the book of Genesis ended. What happens to these people who end up in Egypt? Well, it's all part of a book, right? We studied this in the book of Genesis. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are what are called the Pentateuch, the five scrolls. It's one book that was later divided into these five books, but it was all one book written by one guy, Moses, and he wrote it for the people of Israel. When? I believe he wrote it near the end of his life, right before the end of the book of Deuteronomy, right before the people of Israel were preparing to go into the land of promise, 40 years after they left Egypt. And he wrote it knowing that he's not going to get to go in, and he wants them to be prepared for what's going to happen next. This book was written for the people of Israel. That's why I said it wasn't written for you. It was written for them, and it was written for a particular purpose before they went into the land of Canaan. Here's what's really interesting about this book. If the book is about freedom, they get set free, but if you go all the way to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the five-book series, they still aren't in the land of promise. And I've never noticed that before. But it's like, God, what kind of a book is this? Why would you end the book if you set them free so that you could get them to the promised land? Why does the book of Deuteronomy end and they're still not in the promised land? That's like some kind of a sick joke, right? Hey, Moses, I'm going to set these people free and you're going to take them all the way to the promised land and they're going to live there with me. And not only does the book end and they still haven't entered, he doesn't get to go at all. I would have been a little chapped at that myself. This is, this is not the way this is supposed to end, but it ends this way because this is the way God intended it. The book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the series, ends with the people still living in the wilderness. So it can't be about freedom to get into the land. It's still about getting God into his people, getting them to love God before they go into the land that God had promised them. So Genesis is the beginning we saw the creation of the universe, the genesis of the human race, where sin came from. That's a big part of the opening chapters. We saw the flood that destroyed a fallen race. We talked about that divine reboot that God did with Noah, where he starts all over with one guy and his family. We later saw the call of Abram and the covenant. And then we saw the rise of Joseph as he gets sold into slavery and ends up in Egypt and he becomes the second most powerful man in that land. And then at some point, a famine comes to the land of Canaan and Jacob and his family have to move to Egypt. That's, that's an overview of the book of Genesis in a nutshell. And it ends with Jacob and his family living in Egypt. But there's a theme. And the theme in the book of Genesis is this, be fruitful and multiply. Over and over, we see this. Be fruitful, multiply. That's how it starts out, Genesis 1. God created man in his image, male and female. And here's what he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is what he told Adam and Eve. Make more of your kind, be fruitful, do what humans do, make more babies, fill this earth with more people like you, made in the image of God. And they did that. Then we see in chapter nine, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He says the same thing to Noah. Be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly, fill the earth, multiply. Now, what's happened between the first be fruitful and multiply and this one? God destroyed the planet because they did produce more of their kind, but they produce sinful people because the fall had taken place. And things had gotten so bad on the earth that God had to start all over. But it's the same mandate, right? Start all over with a new guy and his family. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. And then he chooses this guy named Abram. And he says, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I'm going to multiply you, Abram. Here's the problem. Abram's old and he's got a barren wife. But God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to do it. 
Notice he doesn't say, you be fruitful and multiply, because he can't. He says, I'm going to make it happen for you, and I'm going to make more of you. Then he brings Abram outside. He says, look toward heaven, number the stars. If you're able, so shall your offspring be. This is what I'm going to do for you, not what I want you to do for me. I'm going to do great things for you. Even though you are old and your wife is barren, I'm going to give you offspring. And then God said to Jacob, his grandson, Jacob, Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. It's all about multiplication. It's all about making more. And then we see, once again, the end of Genesis chapter 46. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were 66 persons in all. And then when you add in the sons of Joseph, it adds up to 70. See, Genesis ends with 70 people moving into Egypt, and it begins in Exodus with 70 people moving into Egypt. It's the continuation of the story. That's why I want to do the book of uh, Exodus, because, man, it just stinks to end with Genesis. I got to find out what happens to these 70 people. What, What happens to their lives? What does God do with these 70? Well, he does what he's already had planned since the beginning of the world. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's still in the multiplying business. He still is going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. What you need to understand is he said to Noah, and he said to Abram, and he said to Isaac, and he said to Jacob, I will make of you what? A great nation. How many people moved into Egypt? 70. By any stretch of the imagination, is that a nation? No, that's a large family. So at this point, that promise has not yet been fulfilled. You got 70 people, but God isn't done yet. He's going to keep his promise. He's going to do what he said, and he's going to take Abram, and he's going to turn him into a great nation, and he's going to do it in a place called Egypt. It's going to take time, and here's how we're going to end this morning. It's going to take tribulation. Here's the promise. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is the promise that God made to Abram long before anybody lived in Egypt who were Hebrews. But he says, I will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. God had made a promise. Here's what I'm going to do. Your people, your descendants will eventually end up in Egypt, but I'm going to leave them there for 400 years. They will suffer greatly, then I'm going to set them free. That's where the book of Exodus begins. That's where the story is going to launch as God picks up his timeline. 250 years between Genesis 15 and Genesis 46. 70 years passed between Jacob's arrival and the death of Joseph. See, time has gone by, but God's working his plan. Six decades are going to see the death of all the brothers of Joseph. That whole generation is going to die. See, God has a timeline. Here's the deal. You don't like God's timeline. I don't like God's timeline. Sometimes I wish he'd hurry up. Sometimes I wish he'd slow down. Sometimes I wish he would just butt out. But God knows what he's doing. It says that all the brothers died, that whole generation. But what happens? They're fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong. If you don't see the connection between the power and the sovereignty of God and those statements, then you're never going to see anything in the book of Exodus. This is the first seven verses of the book, and it tells us that this is God doing something that only God can do, filling the land of Egypt with more of Abram's descendants. This is a work of God. This isn't just people who are really prolific. This is a miracle. This is God doing something only God can do. It's the birth of a literal nation, and God chose to do it in Egypt, not Canaan. He multiplies them miraculously. Some commentators make statements like they breeded like rabbits. They they were literally just popping out babies left and right. Well, that's that's not just because they're prolific. It's because God is working a miracle. God is fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham, blessing them greatly, multiplying them. But that blessing comes with a curse. Look at this, Genesis, or Deuteronomy 26. When you enter the land that God has given you and you have conquered it and settled there, put some of the first produce from every crop you harvest into a basket and bring it to the designated place of worship. And then you must say in the presence of the Lord, 
My ancestor Jacob was a wandering Aramean who went to live as a foreigner in Egypt. His family arrived few in number, but in Egypt they became a large and mighty nation. That's the promise. God said, this is what I'm going to do, but it came with a curse. Deuteronomy goes on. When the Egyptians oppressed and humiliated us by making us their slaves, we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. He heard our cries, saw our hardship, our toil, and oppression. Here's what I don't want you to miss. God made a promise, but that promise came with a blessing because his ways are not our ways. I still don't get this part of the story. I still don't know why God chose to do it this way. I don't always understand God's methods. They don't always make sense. They're not always pleasurable in my life, right? There are times I go, God, I don't like this. And he goes, it's all right. You'll be fine. Just trust me. I know what I'm doing. His promises almost always produce problems. For who? Him? No, me. You, the people of God. I wrote this in the devotionary. While his name is not mentioned, God is all throughout this passage. He was with them. He was blessing them. His sovereign will was being done on their behalf. But as the story will reveal, even the blessings of God can be accompanied by difficulty. In fact, it will become readily apparent that their fruitfulness will produce conflict between them and the Egyptians. This is what the first seven verses set up as we begin this series. So here's what I want you to talk about around your tables this morning. Three, three very simple questions. First, what has God been teaching you on your own personal faith journey? This has nothing to do with what we've just talked about. I want you to share with the guys at your table, what has God been teaching you since you came to faith in Christ? Simple as that. What's God been teaching you? Secondly, how did God's le- today's lesson encourage your faith in God's plan for your life? Are you encouraged by what you've just heard? If not, fine. Hopefully that'll change. If so, in what way? Then finally, I want you to go back and look at that A.W. Tozer quote. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Is your concept of God too small or limiting? And I need you to be honest with one another. Fully open up and say, you know, I tend to see God as judgmental. I tend to see God as distant. I tend to see God as not there for me. I tend to see God as whatever. Share that, and here's my hope. By the time we're done in 11 weeks, your view of God will have radically changed. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their patience, for their willingness to come and early on a Tuesday morning hear this lesson on the book of Exodus. And I pray that, Father, as we go through these 11 weeks, every guy would show up, every guy would pour out, every guy would listen, every guy would seek to know you better so that in 11 weeks from now, we will know our God better than we've ever known him before. And we will trust you and we will obey you and we will walk with you and we will rely upon you more than we ever have before. And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.